today on Ag News Daily. Well, today the Packers are only buying about 25% of their cattle in the cash market, and the rest of the cattle are procured through unpriced formula contracts for the most part. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Another episode of the Ag News Daily Podcast. I'm your host, Delaney Howell, joined by guest host today, a voice we haven't heard on here in a little while now, Ted Seifred. Ted, how you doing today? I'm good, Delaney. How are you? I'm holding in there, I suppose, for today. Yeah, it's about the same. It's uh, uh, lockdown day, whatever. 17, yeah. I think. I don't know. I don't Ugh. know. I can't keep track, to be quite honest. I don't even know what day it is anymore. So <laughs> I don't know either. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I'm I'm having to try and keep track of what day are we on, what week are we on. It feels like March, the entire month of month of March lasted a really long time. Oh yeah, real long time. And uh, I feel like April's going to be the same. And yeah. uh, you know, I think I think today it's a lot of people feeling a little bit uh, less optimistic about things today because yeah, it just it feels like this uh, might not be ending anytime soon. You know? No, I know. And we've, we're, of course, under lockdown, I guess, at a national level until April 30th. We saw the commodity markets just take a complete nosedive today. So, yeah, I don't know what there is to be positive about, especially as you continue to look. I know this is one of your hot button issues, Ted, but the ethanol industry, we saw the EPA yeah. release their new fuel efficiency rule on Tuesday, and a lot of ethanol and biofuel groups were very disappointed because there was no incentive to have higher ethanol blends or flexible fuel vehicles. And they essentially, I read a quote that said they're also declining to adopt new incentives for flex fuel vehicles, as some of their commenters suggested. Yeah, right. And in a lot of disappointment in the ethanol industry here today on Tuesday. Um, you know, last week it was sounding like Trump wanted to do a bit more with that. And it it didn't pan out. So yeah, that's, uh, that's disappointing. But ultimately Delaney, if we're not out driving around and doing things and we're not using a lot of gasoline, the blend really doesn't matter. Uh, and that's the unfortunate truth that we have right now. Now, the funny thing is on a day like Tuesday, when you have uh, crude oil relatively unchanged, in fact, the May contract posting positive gains uh, for a good portion of the day, and you have corn down, especially in those back months, that should bode a little bit better for the ethanol guys as far as profit margins are concerned. However, they're so far in the red right now that it's not enough to really make that big of a difference. And like we said, you know, there's just no demand out there right now. And that is the biggest problem that we have with ethanol. It's a big problem for corn. It's just a big problem. I mean, there's <laughs> we're, we're surrounded by big problems right now, Delaney. That's just uh, how this feels at the moment, you know? Yeah, and I mean... I think it's a good mix to have commentary intertwined today with news. But, Ted, when you look at the ethanol industry in particular, looking at these red margins that they've been facing, I mean, this isn't new to the ethanol industry to have red margins right. or, or losses. But looking at these current conditions, how long do you think it's going to take before they're able to claw their way back out? I know it's kind of dependent, of course, on driving and all that. But what's your long term yep. view? Well, so that is the rub, Delaney, because, you know, if we were, in fact, to go back to work and everybody starts moving around and business as usual after the end of April, uh, we already have these 
massive stocks that are building in ethanol right now that we're struggling to find places to, to store. So it'll take a while to work through that glut. The problem is, is that at least today, I feel like the hope that this will be taken care of by the end of April is sort of slipping away. You know, when we see uh, reports that at least one county in China is going back under lockdown, um, you know, the idea that their five weeks in isolation had fixed the problem kind of got dashed today. And so the concern is that 30 days of, of us doing isolation, we were hoping that would fix this problem. But now we're very much worried that it won't. So what is it, six months now of isolation? And if that's the case, uh, we really need to see the ethanol plants shut down before we build up stocks that are just so tremendously big that we'll take years to dig ourselves out of. Uh, so it's, it's a, a problem that is compounding by the day. Uh, we don't have really the export market to offset it. That would be something that could really get us by for the time being. But then when you hear about problems in China, you go from thinking, hey, China is getting back on track with, with wanting to start to buy things now. We saw that 756,000 metric ton purchase of, of corn from China last week. Uh, we started feeling optimistic about that. Hey, maybe they're going to buy some ethanol. They said in the past they could use a billion gallons of ethanol, and they should be motivated to buy right now. But then you hear that they're going back under lockdown, and you know if that becomes widespread, they have the same problem we do. People aren't driving around. They're mm-hmm. not using it. So it really dashes the the hopes of, of ethanol exports being a big savior for the market right now. So yeah, just the, a lot of disappointment today on a number of fronts, but a lot of them centered around ethanol. It's not been a good day. Uh, <laughs> you look across the markets, it's not been a good day. You know? No, no. And I can't, I've got to say, if uh, we get stuck under house arrest, that's what I'm going to call it. If we get stuck under house arrest for another six mm-hmm. months, I don't know what I'm going to possibly do. So I don't lose my mind. <laughs> I know. Well, Joanny, just personal commentary here. I don't feel like as as Americans we'll really do that unless we are absolutely really, really scared. But I think there's a lot of us, myself included, that towards the end of April, I think we're gonna start moving around again, regardless of what the mandates are or what the you know, for under house arrest or not. I just don't think us as a society, just our culture we're not good at sitting on our butts. We want to get out. We want to fight. We want to do things. And those of us that are able-bodied and really not at high risk, we want to take this thing on. Yeah. So, you know, the whole point of the shutdown or the lockdown was to smooth out the curve. Fine. We understand that. We're all going to fight for the common good there. However, it's not let's stay inside until this thing is gone. Okay. We're going to get back out and work in one way or another. I really feel like, and maybe it's just me, but I feel like a lot of us are, are sort of the same mindset. Mm-hmm. Whether the government's suggesting it or not, I feel like we do start getting back to business at the end of April. We'll, we'll give them that. We'll give them the 30 days. Or we'll, at this point, it's going to be closer to 50 days. But we'll give them that. But after that, I'm going back, regardless yeah. of what they say. Yeah, it's just hard, I think, as we look at the, especially cases confirmed and death losses. I have some updated numbers here. We've now seen confirmed cases over 880,000 people worldwide and are expected to reach about 1 million here before, I don't know, I think before the end of next week. I mean, I think here within the next two to three weeks, we're expected to see about 1 million cases and about Mm -hmm. 25,000 of those cases as of yesterday 
which increased 75,000 in just one day, about a, th- a third of those were in the United States alone. So I don't know. I feel like we're just kind of at the beginning of a peak here for the United States confirmed cases. Yeah. Well, you know, we knew that was kind of going to happen. Um, we knew that the, the path that this thing on, was on, we knew it was going to get worse before it got better. And specifically, we knew that as we increased testing, that gives the opportunity to have more positive tests, right, or, or positive results. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not surprised. I don't think anybody should be surprised that we're seeing cases go up and fairly dramatically because, again, testing has gone up very dramatically. We've gone from the state of Illinois has gone from 4,000 a day to 10,000 a day capacity to be able to test. So whenever you do something like that, you have to expect that we're going to get more positive outcomes there. So, um, and doing by positive outcomes, I don't mean something hopeful. I mean, we're going to get more positive confirmations that people have right. coronavirus. Right. So again, this thing's going to snowball. It's, it's been said all over the news. Trump said it last night. The expectations over the next two weeks, it's going to be a very difficult next two weeks because that number is going to start going up significantly. The death toll will probably be going up significantly. But the idea is that after the next two weeks, we should start to see that fall off, at least enough to the point where we can say, okay, we've, we've sort of, again, smoothed the curve. That was the that was the thing everybody wanted to talk about. That was the main push. That was the reason we're doing this. If we can do that, again, I think those of us that are able-bodied should go back to work. A new story that I saw yesterday, I don't, I don't know if you guys talked about it or not, but China, or, I'm sorry, Germany is kicking around the idea of testing their entire public, not just to find out if they have coronavirus, but if they have previously had coronavirus, and if they have, Sending them back out to the workforce because you've got antibodies now. You're good to go. Get out there. Anybody that hasn't, stay in lockdown. Interesting. You know, especially the high risk. And I don't know. Logistically, I feel like that would be a monumental task, especially when, as as uh, you know, the whole world is struggling to keep up with the demand for testing and everything like that. I don't know how they do that, but it would be awesome to do that because I think a lot of us may have already had coronavirus. And uh, do have these antibodies and shouldn't be stuck at home because we're not at risk of getting it or carrying it to someone else. That would be awesome. If we can figure out a way to do that, I have a lot more optimism and hope going forward. But for right now, we don't have enough to, to test people that are sick. Uh, so that is the problem. We, mm. need, we, need, we need a better, more efficient way of testing. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, just to switch tracks a little bit here, because I want to get your take on this as well especially because today's interview revolves around this topic, and that's going on right now in the beef industry with price fixing. We saw Senator Grassley Mm -hmm. told reporters on Tuesday that he is cracking down. He wants the Trump administration to crack down on this potential price coordination by, of course, the large meat packers, the kind of the big four there. And we also Mm -hmm. saw back in March, Secretary Purdue ask for basically months-long to address this months-long price-fixing probing, he asked for additional resources and tools. But I think the the big-picture thing here is that, you know, when we look at grocery stores, we've seen huge mm-hmm. increases in consumer spending when it comes to meat. And right. yet, you know, we haven't seen that reflected in the in the live cattle and feeder cattle markets. And going to chat here with RCAF President Beef... Or, 
RCAF President Bill Bullard here in just a moment to talk a little bit more about that. But, mm-hmm. Ted, what's your take on all of it? Yeah, right. And obviously, you know, the idea of price fixing is is not good, right? I mean, because if we're keeping prices higher than what they really should be, because we see that upfront demand, we've seen this run on the grocery stores as people are stocking up and filling up their freezers because they're worried about an indefinite shutdown and at some point maybe not having the availability for that sort of thing. Well, the problem is, is that, you know, lower prices have a function. Those lower prices are to stimulate more demand. And if you don't have those lower prices at the grocery store, it's very difficult to stimulate that demand. The argument on the Packers end is that that demand's already there because people are freaking out. We're just trying to strike while the iron is hot. We're trying to insulate our profit margins because we know we're going to go through rough times. So it's a tough situation. I think we it should definitely be looked into. I don't know which way I'd end up on it. It really kind of depends on how much collusion there's actually been. So. Mm-hmm. We need to know more about it before I have an opinion. And I don't on, even on know if how. I think there's been wrongdoing. Yeah, I don't know how you even yeah, go about proving that? that, right? Yeah, exactly right. Uh, especially in a climate like this. But yes, um, that being said, you know the concern that the futures market has, and again, Delaney, I, I hate cliches, but this is a, a timely one. We don't trade today's; we trade futures. So we're not looking at what's going on necessarily today or what's gone on in the last week. We're looking at what happens in the next two two weeks, two months, two years. And the concern is that, you know, the rush on the grocery stores happened. People stocked up. We are stocked, and that is demand that all got pulled forward that gets lost further on down the line. So uh, that demand already happened, I, I suppose is a better way of saying mm-hmm. that. So the Packers and the markets are bracing for the idea that Beef demand is going to fall off of a cliff as we continue to be shuttered in. We continue to survive off the the, the upfront demand that we all went out and stocked up our, our freezers. It's going to take at least 30 days to chew through that. Uh, and that people won't be going to the grocery store and clearing out the meat counter like we have been the last couple of weeks. I don't know if that ends up being true or not, because we're all now at home. We're eating a lot more at home rather than going out. Uh, so I think the restaurants, I know the restaurants have a big problem, and there is a, a concern about demand for what we've been eating through the restaurants, but I get the feeling we're going to chew through our supplies, our personal supplies, what we have at our home, our home and, and what we put in our freezer. I think we'll go through that quicker. I think that we're still going to continue to put pressure on the meat counters at grocery stores. I think domestic demand will stay fairly strong, but then you have the economy, you know, you have, you have the concern that people are, are out of jobs or not getting paid right now or getting furloughed and don't have the money to spend on things. So it's, it's a very complicated and unprecedented situation. The markets obviously have a lot of concern. Packers have a lot of concern. So that's all being expressed. Now, whether that comes to true or not, I don't think it'll be as bad as what some are expecting. But it's certainly not a good situation, Delaney. That's the bottom line. Yeah, absolutely. And Ted, I want to ask you one more question here as we head into the markets, and I'll let you do the honors there. But one more quick question for you. Mm-hmm. But uh, corn and soybeans, I've been hearing some folks, some rumors, some trickles, listening to some conversations behind closed doors. But, you know, hearing producers, they're now questioning their decisions as we're getting ready to roll for planters. I've heard a lot of people Mm -hmm. questioning their decisions about whether they should do corn on corn, whether soybeans is the right choice. I mean, looking at today's commodity prices, especially the Mm sell-off in in soybeans that happened today, what are you recommending to people? Do they plant corn? Do they plant soybeans if they can have that choice to switch? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, so today's an off day, and it comes at a weird time because, you know, we just had that acreage report yesterday showing 
a whole lot more than expected as far as corn acres are concerned and on the lower end of expectations for soybean acres. And to me, that really highlights the need that longer term, you know, going into this year, and especially if China does start to buy, we need more, we need more soybean acres and less corn acres. Um, I would like to think that guys are pushing more towards soybeans. And all the conversations that I've been having with my producers over the course of the last couple of weeks, I think that's really happening. I think you're going to see at least a million and a half, if not closer to two and a half million acres shift from corn into beans just based on what's happened in the last couple of weeks and the outlook that, hey, things could be better for soybeans than corn for next year, especially with all the ethanol concerns that we have. So I think that's happening, Delaney. I think it needs to happen more so than than what it is. And I think guys really need to take a hard look at planting beans instead of corn this year, but also because the opportunity, I think, going forward might really be in soybeans. So I, I think we should be looking at that. I'm encouraging guys to take a harder look at soybeans. Today, with what the markets did, that was more about fear about China and exports and everything like that. Today, we saw that spread ratio favor corn in a big, big way. But going forward, I think that will snap back. I do think that soybeans will gain on corn, whether it's lower corn prices and soybeans stay about the same, something like that. I don't know how it'll exactly do it, but the board should be asking for more soybean acres going forward. All right. Well, Ted, with that being said, why don't you read us through today's closing commodity market prices? I know it's ugh, scary day in there, but to rip this bandaid yeah. off for us. Yeah, not ideal, Delaney. It was a nasty day in the markets. We'll start with the, the, the grains and for corn. Well, we had May corn down six cents at three thirty four and three quarters, while the December really took the brunt of it down ten and a quarter at three forty seven and a quarter. Very strange day to be bull spreading on a down day, by the way, Delaney. Uh, as far as soybeans were concerned, May beans down twenty three and a quarter at eight sixty two and three quarters. We had November beans down fourteen at eight sixty three and a half. We are bear spreading the soybeans, so the opposite of what we were seeing in the corn market. As far as the wheat is concerned, Chicago May wheat down 18 and a half at 5.50 and a quarter, with December wheat down 13 at 5.59 and three quarters. Kansas City July down 17 at 4.82 and a half, while Minneapolis July down 13 and a quarter at 5.34 and three quarters. If you look at the cotton market, December cotton down 2.86 to 50.55, a big down day there for cotton. As far as the livestock are concerned, I'd almost rather not read it off to you, Delaney, but August feeders down a full 450. That is limit down to 124.40. We have November feeders also limit down, down 450 at 125.40. As far as live cattle, April live cattle down the limit 450. That's the expanded limit for today, ending at 97.32. And then we have hogs also limit down the non-expanded $3 limit. Uh, April hogs at 49.20. December hogs down three, 300 at uh, 51.30. So a lot of red on the board. Pretty much everywhere you look, Delaney. Nasty little day here today. You know what? Actually, Ted, the one market that's had some positivity today has been the Class 3 milk futures having some green on the screen. Yeah, you're right about that. Um, you know, you go back to the the run on the meat counters, well, we had a run on dairy as well. And people are looking at things like yogurt as a good source of protein to have stocked up in their fridges, and that's not something that I think we all had really anticipated. So dairy stocks dropping a little bit more than expected. Absolutely. Well, we're going to chat about that on the podcast coming up later this week with Alyssa Badger. But right now, let's turn it over to my conversation with RCAF CEO Bill Bullard. 
Well, as we continue to pay attention to issues impacting the commodity markets and specifically the cattle markets, we've got on today Bill Bullard, who is the CEO of RCAF. Bill, thanks so much for joining today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. So, Bill, when you look at the cattle markets, especially right now, they have been having some very volatile times, as all commodity markets have in the midst of COVID-19. What are you seeing from your perspective or hearing from producers as related to just the crazy volatility in the cattle markets? Well, very importantly, our cattle market has been functionally deficient and dysfunctional uh, for many years, at least since 2015, because since that time, there's been a complete disconnect between the value of cattle and the value of wholesale and retail beef. And so we've seen cattle prices plummeting while retail prices continue to increase. In fact, that's been the trend for the past three years. So the coronavirus incident did not create the crisis that our cattle industry is in because we were in this crisis for several years. But the coronavirus crisis did shine a spotlight on the severity of the problem in our industry particularly when we saw wholesale and retail beef prices skyrocket and cattle prices at levels back where they were a decade ago when consumers were paying 25% less than what they're paying for beef today in the grocery stores. So there's a serious, serious systemic problem in our cattle market structure. The very structure of the industry has failed cattle producers on one end of the supply chain and consumers on the other. And we must institute meaningful reforms if we're going to preserve an industry where independent cattle farmers and ranchers can continue to earn a profit in a competitive marketing structure. We certainly don't have that today. Yeah, and I would say that really here over the last year, maybe two years, the cattle industry as a whole, regardless of what organization you support or are a member of, have started really vocalizing that they feel very much the same way, that the Packers are perhaps controlling or manipulating the marketplace. From RCAF's perspective, Bill, what are you guys doing to work with the administration or Packers to try and sort this issue out? Well, we've gone to the administration for over a decade uh, trying to institute reforms, and our requests have fallen on deaf ears, with the exception of some key senators who have actually drafted and and introduced legislation for us. For example, back in the mid-2000s, we tried to include a requirement that packers had to purchase a certain percentage of their cattle procurement needs from the price discovery market, from the cash market. That was to preserve the integrity of the cash market. And at that time, the Packers were buying about 50% of their cattle there. Well, today, the Packers are only buying about 25% of their cattle in that cash market. And the rest of the cattle are procured through unpriced formula contracts for the most part. So there's a perverse incentive for the Packers to manipulate the ultra-thin cash market, which they can readily do simply by not showing up to bid. And as a result, uh, the meatpacking industry, upon our introduction of this legislation, fought back vehemently to prevent any reforms in the cattle market. And that's why we're in the shape we're in today. So in April of last year, long before the coronavirus, long before the Kansas fire in Holcomb, Kansas, RCAF USA filed a historic lawsuit 
we found that the government regulators in Congress uh, did, were not inclined to take any steps to preserve the competitiveness of our market. And so our members decided we had to go it alone and step to the plate and filed a historic class action antitrust lawsuit alleging that the four largest beef packers, Tyson, Cargill, JBS, and National Beef, have conspired to artificially depress prices paid to producers while simultaneously inflating their profits and their margins. So that lawsuit is pending. It's a national in scope. It includes as class members, any producer who sold cattle to those big packers. And since we filed the lawsuit, we had the incidents in October of 2019 regarding the Tyson plant closure that caused a tremendous, obvious disruption in the marketplace, causing more people to become aware of the severity of the problem. And even the USDA jumped forward and said that they would initiate an investigation. And that investigation of that incident is ongoing. And we expect the results in about two more months. And now with the coronavirus uh, situation, again, another spotlight was shown on the industry. More producers and more organizations became aware of the severity of the problem. And now we have members of the Senate calling for a Justice Department investigation to determine whether or not the Packers were engaged in price gouging that, again, harms consumers on one end of the supply chain and consumers on the other. So there is now uh, an acute focus on uh, the problems that our industry is experiencing. So what we're doing as an organization is we're going back to the mid-2000s when we first introduced what we then called the spot market protection plan to prevent our or protect the integrity of our cash market. We also supported the ban on packer ownership and uh, uh, packer control as well of cattle before slaughter. And we introduced legislation uh, that would prohibit unpriced contracts in our industry because we're one of the only industries, maybe the only one, in which our product is sold without a price even being negotiated uh, through these captive supply arrangements. So those are the key reforms that we need to fundamentally restore competition in our broken cattle market. And that's what we're working on right now in all three branches of government, the judicial branch, legislative branch, and the executive branch. Bill, I want to go back to a point you just made there, and that's that the USDA is still going through this process here, going through the investigation process. Does RCAF's lawsuit, is it contingent upon what USDA finds in their investigation of the big four processors at all? Uh, not at all. In fact, our lawsuit and the full complaint was filed long before USDA initiated that investigation. Uh, so while we're very interested in the outcome of that investigation, uh, we've seen many prior investigations by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and uh, none of them focus on whether or not there was anti-competitive uh, practices going on within the industry or whether there were any violations of antitrust law. And I think that's why the senators today are calling for a Justice Department investigation, because they have the subpoena power and other tools necessary uh, to review the internal Packer documents to determine exactly what had transpired. And Bill, looking at back up here, I know you mentioned that you think the system or feel the system's been broken for quite a few years. But when you look at current day, COVID-19, I think, has put a jump spark, at least on some issues or maybe 
brought more light or attention to some issues, including the fact mm -hmm. that now at least we've seen a stimulus package passed, which will include quite a bit of aid for livestock and cattle producers. Does this recent stimulus package announcement feel like a band-aid to you, or do you think this is a step in the right direction? Well, unless it is coupled with meaningful structural reforms of the marketplace, it is indeed a Band-Aid. It's kicking the can down the road. And so before Congress passed this new CARES Act that includes the $9.5 billion for uh, assistance to producers, including livestock producers, before that happened, we sent a letter to the president urging him not to provide a bailout that our industry didn't want to bail out. What we wanted was meaningful structural reforms, and that included that price uh, discovery market protection. But also, very importantly, we need to put the tools in our producers' hands that they need to compete in the marketplace, and that's mandatory country of origin labeling for beef. And at, when we have that back, consumers, American consumers, can choose to support the American producers whose prices have been seriously depressed, and they can do that simply by purchasing beef that has been exclusively born, raised, and slaughtered in the United States. So we asked the president to institute these two meaningful reforms, protect and preserve our price discovery market, and give the producers mandatory country of origin labeling so they can compete. And then we said, in recognition of the stress that this situation has caused on cattle producers, we suggested that there be an extension of loan payments that there be emergency credit offered by all lenders for producers, and that there be what we didn't include in the letter, uh, but have later discussed and agreed upon, is that we should provide no interest loans to producers. Importantly, we need to provide an opportunity for producers to earn their income in the marketplace. The problem with a bailout, like what has been approved, is that the meat packers or the marketing outlets realize that the producers are going to be uh, covered by taxpayer dollars, and they therefore will offer less for the cattle, and the government's going to pay the difference. We don't want to get into that kind of a cycle. But now that the money has been allocated, we are now formulating a letter to the U.S. Department of Agriculture making suggestions as to how to best serve the interests of independent cattle producers who are indeed suffering from depressed prices. We need to keep them afloat until we can get these structural changes implemented. And so that's where this $9.5 billion comes, uh, becomes very important. So we're thinking outside the box, if you will, as to how to spend the money, perhaps rather than paying the difference between a base price for cattle and what the producer actually receives, possibly we could have a program whereby producers' annual payments are covered by this $9.5 billion making sure that the lenders are not going to foreclose or otherwise deprive the producers of the ability to continue profiting. So we're in the process of formulating what we believe to be the best use of this money. But first and foremost, the distribu distribution of that money has to be coupled with permanent and meaningful reforms to the structure of our broken market. And Bill, kind of a final question for you, but I feel like if we have multiple organizations working together, that would be the best way to get this message across to the administration. And for a long time, right, wrong, or otherwise, it seems like RCAF, U.S. Cattlemen's, and NCBI have all been maybe working on their own issues. What do you think it's going to take to have all three of those cattle organizations come together and agree on 
how to move forward or how to get this fixed by the administration? Well, very importantly, organizations have a loyalty and an obligation to their respective memberships. And the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, for example, has a loyalty to the packers because the meat packers are a part of their governing board and a part of their organization and have been since 1996. So their interests can never align with the interests of the actual producer who is selling their cattle to these multinational meat packers that the NCBA represents. Um, our membership consists of over 5,300 family farmers and ranchers who have voted on policies that we are obligated to uh, achieve. And the U.S. Cattlemen's Association, for example, which split from RCAF a few years back, um, they have their own membership. I don't know what the numbers are, but we're the largest producer-only cattle association in the United States. And what we need to do is grow our numbers in order for our members to achieve the goals that they have voted for and directed RCAF USA to achieve. So I don't know that we will ever align the organizations, nor do I think it's necessary. I think what's necessary is for producers to decide which group is representing their interests and they should throw their support towards that group. Absolutely. That makes complete sense. Well, Bill Bullard of RCAF, thank you so much for joining today. It's my pleasure, Delaney. Thank you. Well, again, a big thank you there to Bill. I know we had a few listeners asking to have him on the podcast, get their thoughts. Hopefully we tackled all of those questions you have. But of course, you can always send us your questions, comments, or concerns on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Ag News Daily. You can also get a hold of Ted Seifert if you've got some questions for him. Ted, how can they hit you up? Well, first of all, I sure do like when we tackle some stuff, and I feel like we did a good job of that today. Aside from that, if you would like to reach me and talk about markets, because that's my thing, you can reach me directly at 312-277-0113. You can also find us on the web at www.zaner, that's Z-A-N-E-R.com. And if Twitter's your thing, you can find me on there as well. I'm at the TED Spread. Awesome. Well, Ted, thanks so much for hosting today. With that, should we let the people go? Well, Delaney, let's let the people go.